Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hey everyone, hope you've had a great start to 2020. Welcome back to Junior Doctor's Corner. Thank you so much for your patience. I know it's been a while since I posted an episode, but we're back and this time we have a team of four people working on Junior Doctor's Corner, so I'm really excited. What I'm also really excited about is sharing this interview that I did with Dr. Bethan Richards. She has made some really brilliant changes to RPA to change the culture of medicine and also improve the well-being of both junior and senior doctors. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Bethan Richards. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctors Corner. Thank you for having me. Now, for those of our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of knowing you, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a rheumatologist by training. Um, I'm head of department of the rheumatology um, at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. Um, I've got a research background, and so one of my other roles um, is as deputy director of the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health. Um, where we do um, a bit of research into the wellbeing area as well. Um, And my most recent role and probably the one I'm most excited about is as the new Chief Medical Wellness Officer. So I have a 0.5 position um, as as the Chief Medical Wellness Officer and as a new Director of the Wellbeing Centre that we're setting up here in Sydney Local Health District. That is very cool. Um, So with today's episode, I would like to focus a bit more about your role as the Chief Medical Wellness Officer. Um, So what led you to that role? I mean, it's the first of its kind in Australia. How did it come about? Look, I so when I first transitioned from the end of my training um, as a rheumatology registrar, I took on um, the clinical superintendent role. Um, here at Royal Prince Alfred, and that gave me an opportunity to help run the basic physician training program. Um, And then I transitioned fairly quickly into the network director of physician training role, and I was in that for about six or seven years. Um, And in that role, I got to look after about 60 trainees every year and I guess went through a fairly intense experience with them over the course of their training, which was often two or three years and so got to know them fairly well um, to the point they pretty much felt like family most of the time and what my team and I was seeing over those few years was the significant impact I think in the distress that the training seemed to be having on them year after year after year and it seemed to be amplifying and, and getting worse um, and we used to have lots of I guess what I call debriefing discussions um, over a beverage at the end of the day about why this was happening. And, you know, we did a few things to try and address it by putting in mentoring programs. And, you know, we had very successful exam pass rates and things, but the the physical and the psychological impact of the, the training on the trainees was, was really, really evident. Um, and then, as you may know, around 2017 um, in New South Wales, we had we had three suicides in basic physician trainees in, th- in three months and, and that hit home incredibly. Um, and I think, 
you know, as part of a frustration and a grieving process and I guess with a bit of anger and things, we, we wanted to do something about it. Um, and so we piloted at our organisation a pilot program called BPTOK. Um, that was essentially a program where we sat down with our basic physician trainees and our directors of training and our support staff to work out what sort of things could we actually do to improve their day-to-day, you know, lives, um, to improve their training and to make sure we were arming them with the right skill sets that we felt uh, were required for the job and, and the right support structures that they were needing. And so that pilot program, BPTOK, went for um, about 18 months. In the evaluation, it went incredibly well. Um, and so what that actually did in our organisation was started a really important conversation um, around wellbeing and what all the factors were that were influencing it. Um, and we certainly got some attention regarding that um, and we were able to secure some ongoing funding that led to what's now called the MDOK program. And essentially that, that's the same components of BPTOK, but we wanted to offer it to all hospitals, both junior and senior doctor throughout the organisation. So then I had a dilemma. I had a program that we'd you know, delivered to 60 trainees that we suddenly wanted to deliver to sort of 500 trainees doctors this year and and what's looking like about 3,000 in the next couple of years Um, and wasn't really sure how to do that and there was an opportunity to go over to Stanford and to learn and see what they've done and so I went over there and did what was called the Chief Medical Wellness Officers course and fortunately for me they've been spending about the last seven or eight years trying to work out similar sort of problem and so we're quite advanced in where they were at in dealing with you know physician burnout and what organisational um, structures and processes and initiatives could you put in place to do this on a really big scale? And so I came back, I guess, with that certification and had a, a really great conversation with our chief executive um, and, you know, with a, with a business case and things, presented an argument to create the first chief medical wellness officer position here in Australia, looking at how it would not only help, you know, individuals and our organisation more broadly, but actually patient care at the end of the day. Now we've got a team that um, I'm, I'm leading in trying to do this in a really sustainable and meaningful way. Before we move on to talk a little bit more about, um, uh, from my understanding, there were quite um, some interesting changes that you've implemented at RPA, but I just wanted to get an idea of your opinion of um you know, physician burnout. I mean, there's um, a lot of resistance against, you know, um, the more currently very popular resilience training. And um, there are some older, um, more senior doctors who view us juniors to be less resilient than before. And, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation, which is great, which is something that's never been discussed before. But there is also at the same time, a lot of contention. Um, Do you have any thoughts about this? Absolutely. So, um, I mean, we faced huge challenges at all different levels in trying to, you know, start a really difficult conversation on a really emotive topic um, in a workforce that, when you look at the data, is is burnt out. 50% of our workforce is burnt out. Um, and we're trying to, you know, look at organisational culture. We're trying to look at medical culture and some, you know, ingrained systems and beliefs that we've had for over 100 years and yet community values have, have changed. Um, and so there's been, you know, huge challenges in, in 
getting started and I guess bringing, engaging our key stakeholders at all different levels um, and bringing people to a mutual understanding of what we are actually trying to achieve um, at very different levels. And so, you know, quite rightly, as you said, you know, we had lots of um, resistance early on, um, you know, potentially with engaging senior colleagues who, you know, without a clear understanding potentially of what it's like for a junior doctor in particular these days, you know, you often hear the, the throwaway lines of in my day, mm. certainly much harder. And I guess this real generational misunderstanding coming from, from both sides in a way about trying to understand each other's worlds and, and why things are worse now. Often yeah. get asked that question, you know, yeah. is this problem a new problem? Yes. Um, and I, you know, I very much believe that it's an amplified problem. And yes, unfortunately, you know, physician suicide has been a, a problem when you go back for a very long time. But I think given the pressure on our health system, the pressure on jobs these days, you know, the medical legal environment, everything that we're throwing out, our junior doctors um, in the you know, competitive nature of training and job security and all those things, um, I think what was a problem is certainly a much more intense and amplified problem now. Um, in terms of junior doctors, I think, you know, I don't use the word resilience because it's become this really dirty word out there. Um, and I think that's because um, in some areas it's been used as a, um, a victim-blaming sort of word in mm. terms of the, the juniors aren't strong enough for, you know, mm. uh, showing weakness if they complain and everything we're trying to undo in terms of these historical beliefs and, and cultures. Um, and so while, you know, absolutely acknowledging that the work we do is really difficult um, and I think most of us have an idea of that when we, you know, choose to take on the profession of medicine, whether we understand the nature of that and whether we're trained with the appropriate skills and knowledge to deal with that. Um, uh, is something I think certainly we could we could do better. One of the big key messages we're doing in, in trying to engage people in the, the well-being um, and professional fulfilment sort of issue is about understanding that you know this is largely due to a dysfunctional system, um, and we can have the most resilient staff out there, and we can train them to be that way. But if you put them into a toxic workplace environment, mm. you know you can break any anyone we've all got our breaking points so I think it's um, resilience is certainly something we shouldn't ignore but if the focus is put there that's when um, we'll get into trouble and certainly fail with any well-being programs. So you mentioned that um, you know it can be very difficult working in say a broken or toxic system um, can you please share with us what's your approach to Improving, you know, doctor well-being, whether it be the um, individual um, doctor or from a more systemic kind of organisation point of view, uh, what kind of changes have you implemented at RPA that you found really helpful? I think what we've tried to do, and we've put a lot of thought into this, is to um, have a really multi-structured, multi-tiered approach um, and rely on a few key principles, and that is that you have to have senior executive and senior clinician buy-in if you want to get any meaningful and sustainable change. Um, and that usually relies on sort of, I guess, two key things. One is um, education. I've probably spent most of this year in my new role 
educating um, my peers, all the different stakeholders around why burnout matters, what it is. I think people often have different ideas about what it actually is and what it means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why is it such a, a devastating thing for individuals, for our organisation and for patient care at the end of the day? Um, the second thing we did was um, we got some local data. So local data is incredibly powerful when you're trying to bring people um, along the journey with you. And so we had a, we had our BPTO case study going and we measured our own rates and they were horribly 65% of our workforce was, was burnt out. Um, and we had some um, good ideas with the surveys and things we've done about what some of the key drivers of that were. And so measuring that baseline data is really important for a couple of reasons. Um, a, it's very, very useful engaging people because this is our problem. It's not data based from the US or somewhere else. And secondly, it engaged the, the trainees um, in the process because I think it gave them an avenue to feel, feel heard um, and actually help us design the program that they wanted. And that really then helped us set up the program. And as I mentioned, we used the Stanford model. So the Stanford model is a three-pronged model um, and it, it does... Um, I like it because it it looks at all the different um, components, I think, that contribute to professional fulfilment um, rather than just burnout. So rather than having a negative conversation about, you know, how do we improve rates of burnout, can we actually focus on something more positive um, than that, which is about wellness and about professional fulfilment? So we're just taking a slightly different slant. So I think you'd agree that that you know wellness is not just the absence of burnout it's there's so much more to it so the Stanford model um, has um, a focus that's on um, individual um, personal well-being and strategies to look at supporting people with that Um, but the sort of two-thirds of it is is focused on culture so both medical culture, organisational culture, culture about well-being and then on systems and processes and so it, it gives the recognition that, you know, the majority of this is we've got to look at our culture, our systems and processes, but we've got to support and empower our junior staff right now because to address culture and system processes takes time, but we have trainees that are suffering right now. And so we wanted to make sure that we were supporting them in the immediate sort of future whilst we were starting to put the structures in place that were going to allow us to make some of the bigger level changes that we really wanted to do. So that's a really nice model if people are thinking about where to start with wellbeing programs. So they were the areas and I guess the structure um, that we started with. Um, We then went and had a look and um, mapped, I guess, what exactly was happening in our organisation. And um, it's amazing until you start looking, you don't realise what some of the little great programs that might be out there in the wellness space and having talked to several colleagues um, about this, there's pockets of really fantastic work happening that often people don't know about, um, even in your own backyard. So we knew about BP2OK, but we didn't necessarily know about what some of the other programs in the district were. Mm. So we went then and had a look at Matt to see if we could leverage off some of that so that we weren't, you know, reinventing the wheel from scratch um, because we don't have unlimited resources um, to be able to do that. So that was another really useful thing that I would, I would think about in going forward. Um, what we learned from BPTOK was that, um, you know, with wellbeing solutions, 
there's no one single solution that's going to help everyone. And so, you know, from noticing, you know, on, on supervising trainees and looking after them over the last decade or so, you can see that once what, what stressed one trainee out wouldn't necessarily stress the next trainee out and one what would help one trainee wouldn't necessarily work with the next trainee. So what we wanted to do was to... Um, be able to offer people a menu of options at the end of the day. Um, and we wanted people to have a taste of them. So it might not be for you, but we want to give you a taste of 10 different strategies that might be useful. And maybe one or two of them you'll think about um, mm. building into your own um, life that way. And so we're trying to really focus on the prevention side of things in that light. Mm. Um, what that also does, and I think it's really important, is this is the stuff that we use with patients every single day. Um, and I think um, if you've got a better understanding, and this is, a, you know, about impact of disease on people, all of these strategies in terms of how to, to maintain your well-being, which come down to pretty simple things at the end of the day, and often it's, you know, eating, sleeping, drinking well, all the things that sound really easy on paper, but how do you do that with the lives that we leave, um, is actually what we end up sharing with patients in a more meaningful way if we're actually leading by example and doing it. So I think one of the key messages we've got about this, if we do this for ourselves, this is going to make us better doctors at the end of the day. It's going to make us actually better human beings, better with our family, better with friends, because we're, we're going to have new insights, I think, that, that, um, that help us. So, so a menu of options that we offered that in a variety of different ways. So where we are now, we started really small. So we started with a few things in the exercise space um, and we, we wanted to address things in the physical well-being, the psychological well-being and, um, and with the social connection or human connection. We realised how important that was and actually that's been one of our cheapest things to implement if you can build in ways to bring people out of their silos in the organisation give them opportunities to, to have some meaningful connection. Mm. Um, so in the physical well-being space, um, our guys have had a chance to do group exercise. Um, and we've done this under, you know, branding and a comm strategy. So there's T-shirts and there's lanyards to make people feel, I guess, valued and like they belong to someone. So if you look at sort of human needs, you know, feeling heard, feeling valued, feeling loved, feeling like you're doing something that has meaning and purpose, if you build that into the core of your well-being program, then I think you're much li uh, more likely to have tangible success long term. Mm. So exercise isn't really just about exercise. We, we wanted to teach people how to be able to prescribe exercise for patients, but actually how to do it themselves. Um, and that doesn't mean going to the gym. So it might mean how do you you got you're doing studying for exam, you've got a 10 minute break. What can you do in a 10 minute break, you know, without any equipment and things? So tailoring it a bit more to our audience. Um, we also gave them changes chance to do group exercise so they come together and, and what we'd often see is they sort of come down a little bit jaded looking and things um, and walking quite separately and they do the exercise class and what you'd see is the debriefing and all the other things that came out and they'd actually walk out as a group afterwards. Yeah. And so exercise was actually more than just the exercise. I think it was about that social connection part. Mm. So it, Certainly work there. Um, we've done the same with yoga. So, um, you know, exercise isn't for everyone. People like different. So some people like yoga. Um, what we've done this year is actually to bring 
in a new initiative that's doubled our numbers, which is a, a tea and yoga. So you've got the opportunity just to drop in for a cup of tea and then we, we're using tea too and we have about five or ten different types <laughs> that people can just come in, drop, have a cup of tea as a bit of a, um, a break before going home. So recharge, have that sort of my day is ended, maybe a little chat, but this sort of mental break to separate um, so that when I go home, you know, I can be my best self. Mm. If you want, you can then do the yoga afterwards. Um, what we've got is, you know, some people choose to do a little bit of both. Um, so that's really in, in the exercise space. Um, we've then, you know, had trainees come to us through our, our governance structure, which which I'll talk about in a moment, but um, to say, oh, that we want to do a futsal team, which I'd never heard about before, or a basketball team. And so we now have a, a mechanism where the trainees are coming to us and we are really facilitating um, their ideas and putting it into practice. And what's that that's really done now is... Um, is allowed the hierarchy to to um, not be so prominent. So in these teams in the exercise classes, we have consultants, you know, doing boxing with interns. So we've got rid of all the, um, I guess, those some of those barriers. Mm. Uh, we're trying to you know, really see everyone as, as peers and, and colleagues in this setting. And I think the exercise has been a really nice way to do that. Um, in terms of the psychological well-being, so that's a different portfolio. Um, our anchor to that, and I guess a great place to start if you don't have a lot of funding, is, is mentorship. So one of the things that we, um, we're actually quite good at but we've, we've tried to get even better at is having a structure or culture in the organisation of mentorship, um, which means it needs to occur at every single level. So um, what we have now is a system in place where, you know, our interns mentor the med students and it's a formal program. Our residents in the Red Resident Mentoring Program mentor the interns. Our registrars mentor the residents. Um, our advanced trainees or our consultants mentor the basic trainees and, and right down the system. Um, and so we've managed to do that slowly, I guess, over the last five years or so to build, build up that. And I think one of the things to recognise with mentorship is that it is a skill. It's not something that everyone's mm. naturally really good at. Mm. And, and, you know, it's, uh, even with matching programs, it, it, it probably only works about 50 to 60% of the time. So what we've done is we've brought in mentor training. So acknowledging that there is, we've got mentor guides to try and set expectations. And I think, you know, one of the key things for a junior doctor is actually mentoring someone else not only makes you feel good but makes you a better mentee because you, you start to learn about what really annoys you uh, <laughs> with your mentees do, right? Um, and so through that you learn how to be a, a better mentee uh, with, with the people that are mentoring you. So that's a really good anchor thing to start with and I think provides, you know, what isn't routinely there in terms of, you know, an opportunity for, for career counselling and debriefing and, and being able to show someone your weakness. And I think a key thing with mentorship is, is not to pick someone that's going to be your future employer because you're not going to be able to show them your weaknesses. So you're going to be a little bit careful about what, what mentors you, you pick or are matched with if you have matching programs. Um, once you've got mentorship in place, we then um, had a look at a whole different series of workshops. And again, from what um, either Stanford was doing or what the trainees asked for, we knew there was knowledge and skills missing. So we, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff that we think should be taught in medical school, actually, to prepare us um, for the environment that we're about to be practising in. I think med school prepares you really well 
in the medical side of things, for the mm. medicine that you'll be practicing, but not for the system and the world that you're going to be practicing. Mm -hmm. um, so we do workshops on things like work-life study, you know, integration. How do you actually do that when you have, you know, a, a job that's incredibly busy, family pressures, and you're trying to sit exams at the same time? Yes. Yeah. Um, and how do you stay sane during that? Um, we do performance under pressure workshops. So we, we know, the, you know, the impact um, we're putting doctors into really pressurised situations and that may be, you know, managing a team at an arrest call. That might be doing an exam once a year, um, you know, high stakes that, um, you know, you, you fear failing. Um, it might be another high stakes, you know, communication type um, scenario. So what we do now is we have workshops for this. So we have a performance under pressure exam workshop. We, this year from the trainee feedback, have um, the Breaking Bad News workshops. Mm -hmm. So again, we're bringing back what some we had a taste of in med school, but what really isn't or hasn't been continued. Mm -hmm. I guess to make people feel like they have um, less anxiety um, yeah. and more security about having some of these really difficult experiences that we're expecting them to do, but we're not necessarily training them to do very well. Um, addressing the stigma around, um, you know, suffering or mental health or not coping, all of that sort of thing, I think, has been another really big initiative. And the fact we're even having this conversation so freely now, I think, speaks to the changes that have happened in the system and, you know, the, the fact that my position's been created and we're allowed to, you know, talk about well-being, I think, is, is a really positive light that you know, many of our predecessors and all their hard work is, is starting to, to pay off. And I think there is an opportunity now. So we're trying to leverage off that. So we, we offer um, mental health first aid training and so that's there for both junior doctors and senior doctors. Um, we're going to be piloting from next year a system that's really worked well in Western Australia. Um, they call it on starter groups, but essentially they're peer debriefing groups um, that you have, um, you know, on a weekly drop-in sort of basis where you can come and you know, share your failures, um, share experiences, you know, get, I guess, validation because what we hear over and over again is often what um, people are fearing and feeling is that it's just them. Mm -hmm. that they're the only ones suffering and because we've had this culture of suffering in silence, mm. I think it, it's something in this imposter syndrome. These are going to be incredibly powerful, I think, because it's going to let everyone know in that room that it's actually a shared experience and you know, everyone's in the same boat. And I quietly have lots of these conversations but no one else is talking to each other about them. And so trying to start that process um, yeah. really widely. Mm. Um, we are doing, you know, a lot in terms of, um, you know, the basic self-care. So having a GP, you know, why and what the importance and actually understanding what the barriers for that. So for any junior doctors out there you know, listening to this, I think the importance of having a, a GP early on in your training is so important because it gets much harder the more senior you get in your training. Um, and I, I certainly was, you know, terrible at this and understand that there are many barriers but I think we also put up some of those barriers ourselves and so what we're trying to do organizationally is have a list that makes it easier so of GPs that have put up their hands to um, say that they'll treat junior doctors um, to almost steer the conversation because they're like well I'm well why would I go and see a GP but yeah. forget about all the preventative health things that we should be doing in this light um, and so you know, having a, a culture around that and 
and about valuing your, your well-being. I think, um, you know, med school teaches us from day one, really, I think, that the patient comes first no matter what um, and that you shouldn't show any weakness. And I think we're now trying to undo a bit of that. Uh, and I think med schools are changing in that way, certainly medical culture very slowly, but it's still a perception out there that you won't get the job next year if you show any weakness and things. Mm. And I think having that real step, and so we do workshops about making it okay to put yourself first, um, even if that sometimes means ahead of the, the patients, and that's not very a sexy thing, but your, you know, your chance of making a mistake if you're unwell and things can put patient care at risk. And so I think um, trying to change the conversation about not coming to work sick um, and what structural things we can do in that way. Um, so we, you know, one of the things we've done there is to create um, what we call leadership terms that are in non-clinical areas so that people have a backup. Um, so they will feel sick leave if needed. Um, and so people have this sense of non-guilt that they don't have to come to work sick because there's someone that can be pulled in to, to do the job. The other um, aspect, I guess, is with wellbeing programs, focusing on those that are unwell. And so, um, you know, how do you, what support structures can you put in place for people that might be really struggling? Um, and so, you know, I think the cultural change of being able to have that conversation, training supervisors to recognise symptoms, actually training um, when people are well, the symptoms to look out, not only in themselves, because you, you, you never see it in yourself, but in your colleagues and being able to have those conversations, I think, starts again to create a culture of we've got each other's back or, you know, being there for one another. And so building that training and that mental health training more broadly across the organisation has been been a big part of that. Um, we have a list of um, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, performance coaches that have put their hands up to say that they also are very comfortable and have experience treating doctors. So they're, they're I guess, some of the, the broad initiatives. Um, do you want to know about some of the really exciting, big structural yes, changes? Yes, I'd love doing? to. Okay. Yes. We have um, a really valuable governance structure in place. And so the other thing I would um, really big take-home point for anyone doing wellbeing programs out there is if you get your governance structure right, because this process is going to take time, you'll ensure that the conversation keeps continues. And so what we managed to put in place really early on is a, a committee, which is our Chief Executive Doctors in Training Committee. And basically that's um, chaired by the Chief Executive and myself, but the entire committee is all different um, stages and disciplines of junior doctors in the room who have a real voice um, to create change across the organisation. So we've got that and that then links into our um, district staff wellbeing committee and we have these at each of the hospitals in our district. We also have an um, RMOA wellbeing officer position. So that was a, a new one, I guess, implemented this year and a, another thing to think about if you haven't got one in your RMOAs, to be the um, advocate or the clinical champion and, again, to put a bit of visibility on wellbeing. This is the person that we're putting on a lot of our other hospital committees to make sure wellbeing is part of that conversation. So out of that, um, you know, we... It's funny where the conversations have gone with what the, the things that um, impact junior doctors' lives. And so we've looked at the basic needs. And so we looked at um, simple things like drinking, eating and sleeping. 
to start with. So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, it's like the bottom rank of what you need to survive as a human being. And, of course, you hear that doctors don't drink all day. In fact, if you look at the BMJ, their, their urine outputs are worse than ICU patients, yes. right? <laughs> We weirdly wear that as a badge of honour sometimes. Um, we don't eat lunch, let alone breakfast sometimes. They're really yeah. terrible nutrition habits. And we, the evidence is clear of the impact of that on performance, right? Uh, and there's a whole lot of things driving that. Um, and then the impact of sort of sleep. Um, and I think that, you know, again, it's not rocket science to know that we wouldn't want someone who's been up for 18 hours operating on us. Mm. Why is that, you know, okay in other realms? So as part of that, we thought, okay, what um, what can we do to address this? So if you're not drinking, why aren't you drinking? Well, there's no access to water fountains. So we, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, we thought, okay, what would it take for you guys to drink? And they said, oh, we want sparkling water. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> We pitched to the chief exec, and so now we have sparkling water fountains and plain water, but sparkling and plain water fountains going to every ward across the hospital. In fact, it was felt to be so important they're putting it into all four hospitals across mm. the district. Mm-hmm. So that just came from the junior doctors and a conversation around that. I think healthy eating, the other big thing that I'm really excited about, and I don't know why this hasn't existed previously, is a protected lunch break. Mm. So we've introduced a 12 to 1 p.m. protected lunch break where junior doctors, they have their half an hour sometime within that time where they don't get paged unless it's an emergency. Doctors, their bosses don't round during that time and the nurses and ward clerks um, take a more protective attitude towards them. So if they see you on the wards during that time, they're asking you, have you had your lunch? And so you've got that sort of, again, trying to create that community atmosphere. And that was certainly the feedback from the pilot that we ran as what, what struck the junior doctors most was having someone care enough to ask them if they'd had their lunch. Um, and so that's been really fantastic and I guess rolling that out um, or have been rolling that out across the hospital. Um, you then have to supplement that with, you know, ability to get lunch. And so we looked at our vending machines, which had terrible quality food in them, and we've now replaced them with sort of healthy meals um, from a variety of different suppliers um, so that there are quick and easy options when you don't have a lot of time and maybe you haven't done the Sunday set up and got all mm. your meals cooked for the week and all those other things that you can talk about. And we do talk about in workshops about how to do a bit better. And then there's, you know, there's a variety of other things about trying to change culture. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a new program just starting, which is to acknowledge a colleague's excellence. So there's so much criticism in medicine and we know you know, there's people don't do feedback very well and that's because the only time they ever do it, it it's, tends to be negative. Uh, and so trying to create a culture where we know that you need seven pieces of positive feedback to neutralise one bit of negative feedback. Wow. Uh, and so this new program called ACE, or Acknowledging a Colleague Excellence, is an online platform where you can just write a little thing of something someone does nice or well that you just observe and it can be absolutely anything from, you know, so you've got a blanket for a patient or something, you know, that that might seem like a meaningful thing but actually made a a difference. And actually by reporting others, it's it's quite good for your own well-being uh, as well. So we're just going to try some sort of kindness initiatives in that way to see if we can make a bit of a dent in, in what I... I see is broadly incivility that's coming around for a whole lot of reasons. People are tired, burnt out, overworked, under-resourced, all the reasons that we know why. So I'm hoping that with enough of these initiatives in place, we'll start to get some really big systemic change. 
One last one I must say, because the junior doctors have focused on this, and it is really important, and I think it's because it's about being valued, is um, making sure people are paid for the work they do mm. and the safe working hours, and that fits into the fatigue management. Um, so we have a real-time monitoring system for the safe hours coming into place. So it's on the payroll, so we will know within that two-week period if anyone's breaching. Mm. Um, there's a real focus um, uh, and a team that now goes and investigates straight away if that's being breached for any way. That does require people to put in overtime claims and things. And so we've also got another initiative, which is about having our chief executor heads down, you know, not as mandating that people are paying overtime for what is being mm. worked because we, we need to know what it is to need to know how to change it going mm. forward. That is amazing. I wish I went through RPA. <laughs> okay. And this was not there in my training either. And so, but it's like, and I think that's that old, like I wish as well. And I think we have a chance now to do something different. I think don't be afraid to try something and fail. I think that's the other thing. We, to get to where we are now, we piloted a few things, didn't work, but it was okay for that to happen. And I think, you know, no one's going to get it right first time out there. I think we need to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having, I think having wellbeing champions or you know, the junior doctor space, potentially having, you know, wellbeing officers at the junior doctor level who have a network together and can share all these ideas. And I'm certainly hoping that there's going to be an army of chief medical wellness officers out there soon. And so I'm sort of talking to New South Wales Health and some other colleagues interstate about mm. how we, you know, bring the, the Stanford program out here to train yes. the next generation. Yeah. Um, because I think to do what we've been able to do obviously takes a huge amount of resources yeah. and work. I've got a team of six people dedicated to this at the moment. And I think for anyone that doesn't have that, you know, this could all be quite overwhelming. And so you'd just be starting small with one thing. And certainly that's what we did three years ago. And then you start to see it grow. Mm. Yes, I would be really um, interested to see this rolling out uh, all across Australia because it's very much needed. I hope that people feel there is hope out there um, and certainly there is a, an appetite for change right now and it it might not feel like it's happening quick enough, particularly mm. for people uh, in the midst of things, but there are certainly things that, that, you know, you can do as a junior doctor to, to take your own well-being, I guess, into your own hands, um, be part of the system, you know, solution, because, you know, you guys are going to be running the system in five or ten years, right? Yeah. Um, and so we want, we want people to be well enough to do that, but um, last that, you know, help, help with this movement and, and cultural change. Mm. Okay, so Dr. Richards, I have one last question. If you could please share with us one or two things that keep you sane in your crazy busy life. <laughs> um, I have a few different things and I, I can tell you from all this work I'm doing, I've, um, I've got much better at looking after my own well-being as well. So a number one thing for me, um, I'm, a, I'm an ex-tennis player by, by Tony, is, is exercise. So... For me, it was building that into a ridiculously um, hectic schedule. Um, and so for me, that's the morning because it's the only uninterrupted time. So I build 45 minutes into my schedule, you know, anywhere between three and five times a week to, to have that. And I can mm-hmm. tell you I really notice it when I stop doing it. So mm-hmm. exercise is a huge one for me. Um, next one, I guess, would be... Um, 
I was terrible, terrible at taking a break and taking holidays. I used to pride myself in how much annual leave I'd built up and until I suffered burnout and then realised how terrible a strategy that was. And so what I want to do right now is for the year ahead, I, I, I schedule the holidays and I make sure that I take them. And that doesn't mean it has to be some grand world trip, um, but having that regular time out I found was actually really important um, for me to, to just get away from this place and realise that it wouldn't, you know, fall down uh, when I left. Um, so that was a really important one. And I think the third one, is, is to maintain connection, human connection. And I think that, um, again, has required scheduling for me. Um, and so it might be with partner, family, friends, but making sure that um, you don't let those you know, non-medical friendships go, making sure that it's not two weeks and you haven't seen your family. Um, so trying to build that into my, my regular practice through through scheduling is probably the other thing. So, yeah, exercise, taking holidays and, and maintaining human connection probably my three biggest strategies right now. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that, uh, Dr Richards. It was very insightful. Pleasure. Thank you for doing this um, podcast. I um, think you're doing a really great thing for junior doctors. Oh, thank you. If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.